Well, good morning, North Wake. Uh, do you notice or sense something a little different this morning? A little less testosterone. Uh, the men uh, of North Wake, about 50 plus men of North Wake, are at the men's retreat together, uh, uh, seeking God through his word and through community there. And so you either get the leftovers with Jake Mason or you get someone they felt competent to preach in Larry Stead. So uh, I look forward to being with you this morning. But we will pray for our time together this morning and for them in just a little bit. But I wanted to start with just an illustration. I know many of us, when we were younger, participated in things like spelling bees, dance recitals, musical performances, sports competitions, you name it. And depending on how good you were, you collected ribbons and plaques and medals and trophies. Uh, The picture on the screen behind me illustrates exactly what I'm talking about. And this is what your trophies looked like if you grew up a hunter. You wish. And for some reason, these trophies made us feel good. We felt a sense of pride, significance, importance, success. They gave us a sense of worth and value and identity. Well, thankfully, we have grown out of this, right? We've boxed up all those ribbons and plaques and medals and trophies. At least I hope you have. And we put them away because we grew out of the belief that silly little things like this is where our significance or identity or worth or hope lies, right? Or did we? Unfortunately, I am not convinced that all of us have grown out of this belief. I wonder if we've simply exchanged them for other things that we as adults now find our significance in. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Can you tell me what this is on the screen behind me? It's really small, but if you're an adult, you probably have one of these. It's a resume. It's usually on a nice piece of paper. If you're Elle Woods from Legally Blonde, it's pink and scented. You see, a resume contains all of your experience, education, skills, certifications, trainings, qualifications, achievements, and awards. Does this sound familiar? Sounds a lot like those ribbons, plaques, medals, and trophies that we collected as kids, right? You see, each and every one of us are still tempted to find our significance in our achievements, in what we have accomplished over our lifetime. You may or may not have a typed up resume, but we all have mental resumes. To prove my point, simply recall the last conversation you had with someone new. Besides the exchange of names, you probably shared some combination of these things, geography, your hometown, occupation, education, hobbies, and social activities. You see, whether you realized it or not, they were sizing you up and you were sizing them up. You were discussing your resumes with one another. Well, today's passage is one big exercise in building a qualified resume. And we will find out that there are really only two types of resumes that you and I can build. One will lead to spending eternal life with Christ and the other leads to eternal life in agonizing separation from his goodness and love. Church, the stakes could not be higher. 
And your job this morning, as you hear the passage read and preached, is to determine which resume best represents you. And to keep this choice before you as we walk through this morning, I've titled today's sermon, Who Do You Think You Are? Who do you think you are? Because as we've learned already, our resumes are filled with things that determine how we would answer that question. It's filled with the things that we think give us identity, significance, worth, value, and ultimately hope. So let's pray together as we start. Father, first and foremost, we want to pray that you would be with us. We know that you're at all places at all times, and so we know you are here, but we welcome you into this place, and we welcome you to have your way with us this morning. As we hear your word, would it have its way with us? And Lord, would we see where true righteousness comes from? Father, we pray for the men who have been retreating with you, And Lord, the best thing I know to pray for them is that they would be abiding with you and that, Lord, when they return, they would continue to abide with you. That, Lord, they would cherish you above all things. So, Lord, help us to cherish you this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we'll be picking up our study in Philippians. We are in chapter 3. This morning we will be in the first 11 verses, and I would like to start with the first three verses. So open your Bibles, phones, tablets, whatever you do. And track along with me. Starting in verse 1, Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul starts this passage of scripture with a reminder and a warning. A reminder to rejoice and a warning to distinguish between that which is false and that which is true. One resume that reveals false belief and one which reveals true belief. And we notice that the first thing that Paul does is pick his theme back up of rejoicing. This is now the sixth time he has mentioned either his own rejoicing or called the Philippians to rejoice in this letter. But this is the first time that he has directed them to do this in the Lord. And in doing this, Paul directs these believers and us to both the true basis of Christian joy and the sphere in which it thrives, as Gerald Hawthorne puts it. So Christian joy is rooted in the person of Christ, not in our circumstances. And did you notice that rejoicing in the Lord is your safe place? All of us have a place where we feel most safe, right? It may be a particular room or a particular house or a particular place or with a particular person. And we're reminded here that our safest place is with a particular person in a particular way. We are safest when we are rejoicing in the Lord. And that is why Paul is so eager and finds it no trouble at all to remind them of this. So church, how can we do this? How can we practically and tangibly find our ultimate safety through rejoicing in the Lord? 
Well, one of the ways that I personally sought to do this a few years ago was to slowly read through the Psalms with a keen eye looking for who God was and how he protects me. And I just want to share with you a sample of what I found. He is a shield about me. He is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. He's the helper of the fatherless. He's the savior of those who seek refuge. He hides me in the shadow of his wings. He is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. He's my support. He's my rock and my redeemer. He's my shepherd. He's the stronghold of my life. He is my strength and my shield. He is a strong fortress to save. He's my hiding place. He is my help and my shield. He is my help and my deliverer. He is the upholder of my life. He's a strong tower. He is my refuge. He's the protector of widows. He is my hope and my trust. He is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is who the Lord is. This is just a sample of what I found in the first half of the Psalms. You see, when we look upon him in his word, we find the Lord as our safety all over the place. So church, pick a book of the Bible. Read through it slowly. Look for all that God is for you in them. And as you see him as your safety, rejoice. Well, next, Paul gives us a threefold warning, each starting with the phrase, look out. And this phrase, look out, also means learn your lesson from. So what he is calling us to do is to pay careful attention to these false teachers, to study them so as to understand them and avoid adopting their destructive beliefs and practices. The Philippian believers and us are called to look out for three aspects that characterize these false believers who were apparently trying to convert them to their religious system. And so these false believers are described as dogs, evildoers, and mutilators. First, in referring to them as dogs, Paul is saying that they are unclean Gentiles. One commentator said that this metaphor is full of bite, Pun intended. Those who claim to be clean, who claim to be the true people of God, were actually unclean Gentiles. A great reversal of identities. And the second description of evildoers follows suit. Those who prided themselves in being the law keepers were actually the law breakers. They're the ones doing evil through their arrogant self-righteousness. And then thirdly, he calls them mutilators of the flesh. They had turned the symbol of circumcision into the substance, and as a result, were doing nothing more than self-harm. There's a biblical account recorded in 1 Kings 18 that you're probably familiar with, where God's prophet Elijah is in a spiritual battle with the prophets of Baal over who is the true God. It's the one where they were seeing who could start this massive bonfire not with matches, not with a fire, but simply through prayer. And listen to what it says about the false prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18. And they cried aloud and cut themselves 
after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. So Paul is saying that these false teachers in Philippi had become like the pagans. They are no different than those who worship the false god Baal who cut themselves to appease their false god. And it is with these three attributes which reflect a works-based, man-centered, self-righteousness perspective that Paul wants us to look out for and learn from so that we do not repeat the same mistake. And then next... He encourages the church to look at three positive attributes of true believers. He says that true believers are spirit-filled worshipers, Christ-glorifiers, and non-works-based. Now with respect to the first attribute, spirit-filled or spirit-led worshipers, we should remember Jesus' words to the woman at the well when he told her, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So true believers worship God in the spirit because God is spirit. And then secondly, Paul says that true believers are Christ glorifiers. They glory in Christ. That is to say that Jesus is the object of their faith and worship. The glory does not rest on man as though he could boast in his own efforts. Rather, the glory and boasting goes to Christ because it's only his efforts that matter. And this leads to the third description of true believers, that they are not works-based. They put no confidence in the flesh. Calvin would say the flesh is everything outside Christ Paul would put it this way in Galatians chapter 5 for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to one another the flesh is in direct opposition to the spirit and so true believers who are spirit-filled Christ glorifiers are not works-based in verses 4 through six will unpack the tragic reality that false believers are ultimately self-dependent in verses four through six. Paul says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul, who has already highlighted the distinction between false and true believers, now is going into greater detail. And he begins by basically saying, anything you can do, I can do better. He is saying that if you want to cling to works, if you want to boast in the flesh, then I have done it better. He is saying, my resume is better than your resume and he does just that he lays out his resume before them he gives them his education his experience his skills his certifications his trainings his qualifications his achievement and awards and there are seven aspects to Paul's self-dependent resume 
And normally when we read a passage like this, we think, you know, these things really have no cultural relevance for me today. And so we kind of gloss over it. But what I want us to do together this morning as we read them is to put them into categories, what I will call cultural corollaries, that will help us see their relevance for us today. So first, he was circumcised on the eighth day. You see, this was precisely the day the people were commanded to be circumcised in Genesis 17, verse 12, from the very beginning. So Paul is highlighting his faithful obedience to his religion. So therefore, the cultural corollary for us today is religiosity. We, we know that we can find importance in that today. The second thing he puts on his resume is that he is of the people of Israel. He belongs to the sacred nation, to God's ancient people, to God's race. So he's highlighting his ethnicity and his patriotism. See the corollary for us today. The third thing on his resume is the fact that he is of the tribe of Benjamin. Why, why would this be significant? Well, the tribe of Benjamin gave Israel its first king. The holy city Jerusalem was within the tribe of Benjamin's territory. And along with Judah, the tribe of Benjamin was the only other tribe loyal to the Davidic covenant. So if we put the second and third qualifications from Paul's resume together, we could say that the pride uh, of being an Israelite is like the pride that we have in being an American. Or as some of you like to say, America. And the pride of being from the tribe of Benjamin is like being a Texan. If you've ever met a Texan, you know what I'm talking about, right? These are proud people. Where's, where's, is Greg Wilson here? We have a couple Texans in here. They're, they're proud. Everything is bigger and better in Texas. So we have patriotism and we have social status. The fourth thing Paul adds to his resume is that he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's carefully followed the Jewish way of life with all of its traditions and heritage. And the fifth thing he includes in his resume is that he is a Pharisee. Oh, what a title. He's held an high and honorable position that indicated how successful he was and we know how important success is for people today right and the sixth thing he puts on his resume was his zeal that led him to persecute the church this is a pretty interesting thing to put on the resume but for his audience he was speaking to it would have communicated his passion and loyalty and, and drive things that are highly exalted in our society as well. And lastly, number seven, he finishes his resume with a statement as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now Paul was not saying that he was sinless, but rather all things that mattered morally to a Jew he had observed. Similar to the rich young ruler in Luke 18, 21, he could say all the commands I have kept from my youth. So now we can see Paul's self-dependent resume and how it correlates to us today on the completed slide behind me displays exactly that. All of these things, religiosity, ethnicity, patriotism, social status, traditions and heritage, positions, titles, success, passion and drive, and morality. All of them are things that 
you and I are tempted to find our significance in, our value, our worth. They are the things that we think make us worthy to other people. And sadly, we can think that they make us worthy to God as well. You see, the times really have not changed that much, have they? So Paul has built a very impressive resume. To be honest, the most impressive resume of his day. And so what does he do with it? What does he do with this ever-impressive resume? Let's take a look at verses 7 through 11. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So what does Paul do with his ever-impressive, self-dependent resume? He takes it. He rips it up. He wads it. And he gladly throws it in the trash. Why? Why would he do this? Because he knows that none of it matters. The only thing that matters to him is Christ. So Paul trashes his self-dependent resume and in its place builds a Christ-dependent one. A Christ-dependent resume. And Paul uses financial terminology to begin explaining why he would do such a thing. And for a financial guy like me, this really hits home because he uses language like gains and losses. If you don't know already, I was an accountant before I became a pastor. And then you would think in the accounting world that the P&L would be supreme. It would be the thing that matters most. But you find out very quickly in accounting that it's not the profit and loss statement. Is actually the balance sheet. This is because the P&L captures a moment in time, usually a fiscal year or a calendar year. You see, it's a snapshot of time. But the balance sheet represents the life of the organization. It represents the culmination of everything the company has ever done. And there's a simple formula that summarizes the balance sheet, and it's this. Assets equals liabilities plus equity. Assets equals liabilities plus equity. Now don't check out. I'm not going to bore you with an accounting lecture this morning, but I do want you to notice something critically important that will help us understand what Paul is driving at here. If you notice on the equation, assets and liabilities are in opposition to one another. They're on opposite sides of the equation. They are mutually exclusive. So Paul is not saying that his resume of self-dependent works simply decreases his assets. No. He is saying they're not assets at all. That they're the opposite of assets. They are actually liabilities. 
because they're on the opposite side of the equation. And they are liabilities because they rob him and everyone of salvation. Paul would put it this way in Galatians 2. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because works of the law, no one will be justified. And a little later in chapter 3, he says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So works of the law are liabilities to us. They're in direct opposition to faith in Jesus Christ, which is our only true asset, our only true hope. The point is, Paul is not simply revaluing works in regards to salvation but rather throwing them away because they are in reality liabilities. The only true asset to him is Jesus Christ, his Lord. Paul is not even using the same economic system, no. For him and for us, it is a completely different system. Gain is now lost, and that gain is now viewed upon as rubbish or garbage or dung, depending on your translation. Basically, the best word for us to use in mixed company like this would probably be poopy diaper. It has been a while since I have been around babies, but with grandkids in the picture now, I have been reminded that there is nothing more disgusting than a poopy diaper. Those blowouts that babies have that even the most technologically advanced diapers cannot contain. I really don't understand how they can build a diaper that can prevent water from going in while you're swimming in a pool for hours upon hours, but not build a diaper that can stop those things from coming out of the diaper. Just thinking about it makes me kind of vomit a little bit in my mouth. And if you've ever been a parent, you know what I'm talking about. Paul is saying, that that is what finding your righteousness through the works of the law is like. If you find your righteousness in your own works, it's the most disgusting thing in the world. It's a blowout poopy diaper. And it should make you vomit in your mouth because it will rob you of your salvation in Christ. Because faith, church, is our only hope. So this is not a simple re-evaluation of what is valuable. It is a completely different thing. And because it's a completely different thing, it requires complete transformation, a comprehensive conversion. This is what Jesus was trying to explain to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that so baffled Nicodemus. Jesus would answer him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, 
He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he was old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. You see complete transformation. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul would say it this way, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Again, Not simply better or of greater value, but rather a completely new creation. So, when were you born again? To ask the question a different way, when is your spiritual birthday? When did you cease to find your hope in your own works and find your only hope in the person of Jesus Christ? When did you place your faith solely in him and therefore become a completely new creation? Remember that salvation requires a complete and comprehensive conversion, not simply a re-evaluation or life reorientation. Friend, religion does not get you into heaven. Relationship gets you into heaven. A relationship with Christ I want you to listen to the relational language Paul uses in verses 7 through 11. He uses language like, For the sake of Christ, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, that I might gain Christ, be found in Him, which comes through faith in Christ, that I might know Him, share with Him, become like Him. You see, the religious system of the day was rubbish to Paul and his relationship with Christ had become everything to him. We must see that our works are rubbish. They are liabilities. They rob us from eternity with God of the universe. But faith, on the other hand, faith in Christ is our only true asset, is our supreme asset, and it's our only hope for eternal salvation. So how about you? Is your relationship with Christ everything to you? Do you know him personally and intimately? Is he your Lord? Personal, possessive pronouns. Is he your greatest gain in life? Are you in him? Does he live in you and do you live in him? Is faith in him your only hope do you share all things with him the good and the bad and in so are you becoming like him through the process if you have you can rest from your works as hebrews 4 verses 9 and 10 put it so then there remains a sabbath rest for god's people for whoever has entered god's rest has also rested from his works as god did from his if you haven't 
Christ offers you his righteousness today. All you have to do is lay down your sinful self-efforts and place your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. You see, Paul gladly threw away his self-dependent resume and embraced a Christ-dependent resume. He was repulsed by a works-based salvation but cherished his faith-based salvation What false believers of the world counted as assets, Paul counted as liabilities. And as Paul is reminding the Philippian church and us that righteousness comes only through Christ by faith. And as he does this, he simultaneously points us to our past, present, and future benefits that come to us as a result. What we get simply because of our union with Christ. You see, as faith-dependent believers of Christ, we are in him, like him, and with him. In him, like him, and with him. And in sticking with our business resume thing, these are our fringe benefits. And they're fringe because they're outside of the wages that we have earned. They are unmerited. They are a grace to us, a kindness from God, simply because we are his beloved. And so first, we are in him we are in Christ we are no longer in ourselves unclean before this holy God because of our union with Christ through faith we have been saved we were made righteous by the righteous one listen to how Paul puts it in his letter to the Romans therefore since we have been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have peace that leads to salvation simply because we have been united with Christ through faith. And secondly, we are becoming like him. Each and every day we are becoming like Jesus He's in the process of transforming us into his own image. The image that we were created in and to reflect from the very beginning when God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness in Genesis chapter 1. As I mentioned earlier, we are being completely and comprehensively converted, not simply reassessed or reoriented. And that which we're being converted to is God's original design. We are being recreated into the image of our great God. And this is a process. It happens over time as we yield our lives to him, trusting Jesus in the midst of trials and tribulations and sufferings that will come our way. For we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we are becoming like him. And then thirdly, we will be with him. Because of our union with Christ, our future is set. It's guaranteed. It's a bright one. Listen to the words from Revelation chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, 
Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be, them, be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is our hope. This is our future. This is what awaits all of us who are in Christ. So if you have been saved, if you are in Christ, you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. You have past, present, and future benefits. Praise be to God. This is great news. So back to the question we started with this morning. Who do you think you are? Are you the person who has been building his own resume based on self-dependent efforts? Do you think you are righteous because you go to church? Because you read your Bible? Because you pray? Because you give to charity? Remember, even though these things are good things for those of us who are in Christ, they are rubbish if you think they make you right with God. Because they are works that you do. They are self-dependent. Or on the other hand, have you thrown it all away? Have you counted all of your self-efforts as those poopy, disgusting diapers? Have you replaced your self-dependent resume with a Christ-dependent resume? One that the only thing written on it is faith in Christ alone. And if you do, your life verse becomes the same as Paul's, which was, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Pray with me. God, may your word have its way with us today. Lord, would you reveal any self-dependency that we have? Lord, even if we are a member of this church and we have lived as a Christian for years thinking that we were right with you because we do these Christian things. We go to church, we read our Bible, we pray, we, we give to charity. But it wasn't through a personal, intimate, faith-based relationship with you. Lord, will we not be afraid to confess to you that we have not placed our faith and trust in you and will we come to know you by faith through Christ today will we throw away our self-dependent resume and grasp a Christ-dependent one and Lord if there's anyone here today visiting that was just wondering what this Christian thing was all about Lord I pray that your word was clear today that our only hope for eternity with you is through Christ's work on the cross, through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so, Lord, it's 
singular faith that makes us right with you. So Lord, have your way with us today, we pray in Christ's name, amen.